There's certain songs that we sing that the words are just so precious to us as we, as we think of them and as they relate to what we study in his word and particular this morning. Just singing the last portion of that, that hymn. On that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face full arrayed in blood-washed linen. How I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Think of that day. Freed from sinning, no longer sinning at all, seeing his lovely face, us having garments that have been washed by the blood of Christ and having robes of righteousness that are not as a result of our own goodness or what we've accomplished, but as a result of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. And in that day, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. How I will sing of what God has done for us. Can you just imagine what that is going to be like? To be there and to have entered into the joy of the Lord and to be able to see him in his glory, to be able to see his face and to be able to, to know like there's no more temptation and, and there's no more pain and there's no more sorrow and all those things are gone and then and then to sing with all that is within us and it's because we are there as a result of him totally completely solely exclusively as a result of christ and him crucified what a great way to begin as we look at our text this morning, and, and we are in the book of Acts, chapter 6, as we continue our study in the book of Acts. Many of you know that I read regularly and, and think frequently, I would say probably daily, about some of the re- resolutions of Jonathan Edwards, and the reason why is because he wrote 70 of them and he read them once a week for the entirety of his life. But one of the ones that he wrote was resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. So for me, I think about that all the time. Thinking about doing something and I think, would I do this if it was the last hour of my life? Probably not. Then I shouldn't be doing it now. Or would I be doing this if it was the last hour of my life? Absolutely. Would I be playing with my kids if it was the last hour of my life? Yeah, no problem with that. Would I be in this pulpit preaching if it were the last hour of my life? Absolutely. Great place to be. Things that, that, that I go about my day and think of frequently. Some of you might find that disturbing. I find it um, sanctifying for me. It helps me. To think that way. Edwards also, in his first resolution, the first of the 70, said, Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good, profit, and pleasure in the whole of my duration, so with the entirety of my life, without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence, resolved to do whatever I think 
to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolve to do this, whatever difficulties I meet with, how many and how great soever. There's a lot in there, right? But it's good. I want to do what's most to the glory of God, what's most to His glory, what's most to my good, what's most to my profit and the pleasure, and I want to do it the whole of my duration, the entirety of my life. I don't want it to be where I have like moments of, of my eyes fixed upon Christ and His kingdom. I want it to be the, the, the duration, the whole duration. And I, I'm resolved to do this whatever difficulties I meet with. Whatever roadblocks are there, I want to do whatever's most to God's glory. And I don't want to look and say, like, I would do what's most to my glory, God's glory if it wasn't for this thing. It just keeps me from doing it. He said, I, whatever difficulties I meet with, however many and however great soever they are, however big they are, I don't care. I want to do whatever is to the most to the glory of God in my good. come to a, a text in which we see the final day in the life of Stephen. The final day in his life. You don't get to do this frequently as far as look into the life of somebody and see this is what their last day was like. But here in our text, we get to see that. What's his last day like? What does he do during that day? How is he received by those that are around him? And is it most to the glory of God, regardless of whatever difficulties he met, and however many and however great soever? We see saints that have gone before us that have thought that way. Living their life and they're at the end Finishing and just finishing well. I read in one commentary, as I said for this morning, of, of some of the final words from certain men. And John Wesley, who's written a lot of the hymns that we have, he said in his final words were these, the best of all is God is with us. The best of all is God is with us. The best of all is God is with us. Farewell. And he died. The best of everything is that God is with us. Adoniram Judson, the missionary to Burma. Um, he's special to me because I, I, I think of my time that I spent in Burma to where I went and visited these believers that were there that are persecuted so severely and this is an area that had virtually no Christians in it at all and total unreached people group. And this man went there as really in the first missionaries out of the United States and he goes into that area and um, most of the people that I saw there, they would link themselves to being saved by somebody that Judson had preached to. And the church is flourishing there. And the final words... For him, as he was suffering in just incredible ways, he said this, I go with gladness, I'm sorry, I go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. 
I feel so strong in Christ. He's there suffering incredible pain. He's just like, you know when like a little kid gets out of school? How happy he is? I'm going like that. The gladness of a boy bounding away from school. I feel so strong in Christ. And he dies. Jonathan Edwards, who we just read those resolutions from, died from smallpox. And he ministered to his daughter and giving her directions and sharing his heart with her. And he said goodbye to her. And the last words that he said is, where's Jesus, my never-failing friend? And then he died. My never-failing friend. He's always, always with me. I'm going to him. When you think of those that have been martyred for their faith, one of the ones that would probably come to mind most quickly as far as more modern-day missionaries would be that of Jim Elliott. Um, many of you know who Jim Elliott is in that he was married to Elizabeth Elliott. He went with Nate Saint and Ed McCulley and Peter Fleming and Roger Yoderin and, and they went to minister in Ecuador to one of the most fierce tribes that existed. And they were there ministering, bringing the gospel to a group of people that had never heard the gospel. So excited to be able to, to find them and to see where they were and to land their plane on little Palm Beach there on the Curray River. And, and they, they land there and they start talking with the people and caring for the people and trying to share with the people and it was there that they were speared to death by these tribesmen. And at that time, throughout America and throughout the world, but throughout America, it was, this was one of the greatest tragedies that could have ever occurred. Missionaries going, these young men. Jim Elliott had his wife, Elizabeth, and a 10-month-old. Valerie, and there he is on that beach, there by that river, and he's speared to death. What they didn't know was that some years earlier, Jim Elliott had written in his diary, his journal, these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. There used to be a young lady at our church for several years prior to getting married, and, and she just spoke of it as if it was no big deal, but their neighbors were Walt Shepard and Valerie and she came from an Egyptian home and Valerie happened to be the daughter, the 10-month-old of, of 
Jim Elliott. And it was them that led her to the Lord. She came from an Egyptian home and became a Christian as a result of the witness of little Valerie who, Shepherd who was no longer a 10-month-old, a mom with kids, but shared the gospel with that young lady. To be able to think of the fruit that came from these people's ministry, we would look at it and say it's not a tragedy, although it's sad in the sense that they died. But God's sovereign hand was over every bit of it. The verse that Elizabeth Elliot used when writing just a short time after Jim Elliot's death, writing a book about it, the verse that, that she used um, came from Psalm 91, verse 1, where it says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him I will trust. And the title of the book is In the Shadow of the Almighty. In the Shadow of the Almighty, He's my refuge, He's my fortress, and in Him I will trust. We come to a text in which we find the first martyr in Scripture, martyred for his Christian faith, and that is in the man Stephen. Now, if you look to the bulletins, fear not, you see that we're going through chapter 6, verse 8, through chapter 7, verse 60. Um, I put that because we're going to be looking at part of all of that, but not all of it in its entirety. So you will get out of here at some point today. But I wanted to, 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 to take a look at, at like, like a flyover of what's taking place because we get to see the end of the story and what takes place. Here's Stephen, and, and he's, he's someone who was picked to be a part of those seven to minister to the widows. And so out of the thousands and thousands of people that were part of the early church, He's picked as someone who is of good reputation and full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And now, in verse 8, it begins to talk about what happens to him on this last day of his life. And Stephen, Acts 6, 8, and Stephen, full of faith and power. Stephen, full of faith and power. What an awesome way to begin a description of this man. What do we know about him? He's full of faith. That translates into my mind in a whole lot of different ways. One is he had a gigantic view of who God was. He trusted God. He would say with Elizabeth Elliot, he's my refuge and my fortress, my God and him I will trust. Full of faith to where he knew whom he believed in. He knew whom could save him. He knew that it was Christ. He knew that it was true. He knew that Christ rose again from the dead after dying on the cross for his sins. He knew without a doubt that these things were the case. And his view of God was just magnificent to where he just trusted God with whatever the outcome might be. Not only that, but he trusted God with all of redemptive history, looking from the very beginning as he preaches this sermon to them in, in chapter 7, all the way to the end, he trusts God and sees God's hand in everything through the beginning all the way through. A man full of faith and power 
The power is obviously the power of the Holy Spirit, a man, a man that is full of the Holy Spirit working through him. He did great wonders and signs among the people. Fruit coming from his life, wonders, signs from this man. Well, then there arose some of what is called the synagogue of the freedom. Cyrenians, Alexandrians, those of Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. Those that were once in slavery that had been freed and are now in Israel, they're there and they are disputing with Stephen. They are debating. They are arguing. They're talking about things without a doubt of Christ and who he is and him crucified and his death and his burial and his resurrection and and. Christ throughout all of the Old Testament and all that God had done. Here Stephen is, and he's ministering to them and caring for them and telling them that all these things that you guys are looking at, all of them are pointing ahead to Christ who was to come, and Christ has come, and this is what he has done. And so Stephen's speaking with them, and verse 10 says, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. They had no answers for him. He's saying all that he's saying, and it's articulated in such a way that we're just told they weren't able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. They hear it, and they know that there is no answer for them to give. It doesn't mean that their hearts are softened. It doesn't mean that they're at a place of, okay, we need to believe upon him. They just don't know what to say based on what they're hearing. What an awesome thing it is to be able to, to be in a place of knowing enough in Scripture to be able to minister the gospel to those that God brings by our paths. It doesn't mean that you need to know everything. There's times where people come and say, like, okay, I got a stumper for you, like, and they'll, they'll say something. And, and there's sometimes where I'll say, like, you know, I, I, I really don't have an answer to that but I can get back to you. I'm sure that someone smarter than me has thought of that, and I'll give you a really good answer when I can, and then I get back to them and give them a good answer. A lot of times they're just trying to steer me off in a different direction, so I go right back to the gospel again. But we don't need to have the answer to everything. But to be able to speak and know that it's the Holy Spirit that's working through us and that God can give us wisdom that goes far beyond us, and that's what's taking place here. But they secretly induced men to say, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So they can't debate with him. And so they say, let's do the same thing that we did to Jesus. Let's bring false accusations against him. Let's get people to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, And they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They dragged him. They brought him by force to the Sanhedrin. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place, meaning the temple and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, and changed the customs which Moses delivered to us. 
Jesus didn't say that he was going to destroy that place. He said, destroy this temple, meaning his body, and in three days he'd rise again, which took place. But they're bringing false witnesses to say, this is what Stephen has said. Here's all the things that he's done, and it's not true. And all who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. What a sentence. Incredible. He's there before the Sanhedrin. They are looking steadfastly at him. And what do they see in this man? The final day of his life, they see a face, and it said his face was like the face of an angel. He was reflecting glimpse of Christ and God's glory. The look on his face being one in which it wasn't full of hate. It wasn't full of anger. It was full of love towards these people, a love for Christ and Christ working through him. From here, we go into chapter 7. And in chapter 7, you see the beginning of him ministering to the people because the people, says the high priest says, are these things so? And then he begins. He begins by going from there to saying, brethren, brethren and fathers, listen. You see respect that's there. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and, and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to the land that I'll show you. And then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was, was dead, he moved him to this land to which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way that the descendants would dwell in a foreign land and they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And then he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. Now, if, if they were listening to this, they would just think, we agree with all that. You're, you're just laying out our history. This is what's taken place. These are the things that occurred. Verse 9 goes from there and says, And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. Now stop there for a moment. The patriarchs, his brothers, being envious, being jealous, sold Joseph into Egypt. Joseph was sent to them. Joseph was there to minister to them. Joseph, Joseph was one who had been called by God, but what do the brothers do? They're envious and they sell him into slavery. But God was with him, delivered him out of all of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine of, and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and the fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first, 
And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. And then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt and died, and and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem. And so he's beginning to build a little bit of a case. Joseph was rejected by his brothers. Verse 17, But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their, their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he, brought up, he was brought up to his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own. And Moses was learned, learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. God's sovereign over it all. He has a plan. And he goes from there and he says, Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit the brethren, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptians. For he, was, for he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two, two of them, and they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he, but he, who, but he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him, Away, saying, you made, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. Stephen is beginning to build another case of, this is, this is what's taking place here with Moses, but... He thought they would get it. He thought they would understand, but they didn't. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, to him in a, in a flame and in the fire and a bush in the, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight and he drew near to observe. The voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. And then the Lord said to him, take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you ruler and judge is the one God sent to be the ruler and deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up you for a prophet, for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear, referring to Christ. Verse 38, this is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying, 
to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for Moses, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what, he, what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, rejoiced in the works of their own hands. And then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven as it was written in the book of the prophets, saying, Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and, and the, the star of the god Rephim, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. And he's just beginning to build a case more and more. You people, your fathers, your forefathers, they are not perfect. They were filled with jealousy. They were filled with sin. They're rejecting the prophets over and over again. Verse 44, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he, had, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen which our fathers, having received it, in turn also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, when, who found favor before God and asked to dwell in the land of God of Jacob. But Solomon built a ha- him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is this place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? And so from there, he begins to go into his commentary to this group of people. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. This is awesome. Now, I read all that to you so you understand. Like This is what he says. He's saying, this is history. This is the history of our people. This is what God has done. This is who you have rejected. This is all that has occurred. God, you, you, you are so focused on this temple, but God tells us that heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. And now I say to you, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You, you're in a place where you are so full of pride your hearts are so hard. You don't listen at all. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Your fathers resisted the Holy Spirit, and now you're doing the exact same thing. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Which of them? Can you think of any of them that your fathers didn't persecute? God sent prophets. He kept sending prophets. And which of them did your forefathers, your fathers, not persecute. And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, meaning the Messiah, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. They, told, they, they murdered those that talked about the Messiah to come, and now you've become betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Not only that, but not only have you rejected the Messiah, but you have not kept the law. And these are the people that are saying, we've kept all of the law. We've done all of it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. We see hatred the most incredible hatred from these people. 
He's just laid out for them. This is history. You have killed the prophets. Your fathers have killed the prophets. You're not obeying the law. And as a result, they are cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What an awesome picture this is of this man's last day. He's there being full of the Spirit, gazes into heaven, just looks towards heaven. I read to you Jonathan Edwards' final words where he's saying, where is Jesus, my never-failing friend? Looking for him. Where's Jesus? Gazing up into heaven, and he dies. Here's Stephen gazing into heaven. He sees the glory of God. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Peter had said, If you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of the glory of God rests upon you. On their part, he's blaspheming, but on your part, he's glorified. You're going to be persecuted. But blessed are you. The spirit of glory, of the glory of God rests on you. And we see that occurring here. Look. I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I see him. It's such a comfort to us to know that that's the case. Most of you know Pastor Bill Acton, just turned 96 years old. Such a blessing to us um, as he serves us and he's served us since our church began. Someone who's been a pastor for a good portion of his life. And his wife, Faye, I visited her this last week, and um, she's not going to be with us long. Um, she can't, she hasn't ate or drank anything for about seven days and isn't coherent anymore. And it, it could be today, it, it could be tomorrow, but more than likely it won't go more than the rest of this week. And to be able to think, here's this lady that has been married to Pastor Bill for over 60 years, pastor's wife for 60 years. It's a big deal, huh, honey? <laughs> Prior to us getting married, he talked with Tasha, and he just said, my wife, she's the best pastor's wife ever. Ever. The best ever. He said, You want to know what her secret is? And Tasha said, Yes. And he said, She keeps her mouth shut. 
And so the fact that you never hear my wife talk, it's because of that. <laughs> he went on to explain, he's not that mean. He, he went on to explain that his wife never participated in gossip. She never did stuff to hurt the congregation. She never caused division or any such things. Um, what a blessing it is to, to have a pastor's wife that is not the one that is causing division, but rather ministering to the body. But to think, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. To think of the psalmist who said, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. As she's at this place of the valley of the shadow of death, she has nothing to fear. Stephen had nothing to fear. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. He even prepares a table in the presence of our enemies. He anoints our head with oil. Our cup runs over, and surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, forever. Well, they cried with a loud voice. They stopped their ears, and they ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They stoned him. They put him to death. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Who's Saul? He'd become Paul the apostle. Remember when Saul said, or Paul said, although I was former, formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. Or he said... Just a couple verses further on. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I'm the chief of them. Well, he was there. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. The same words as his Lord. They're throwing rocks at him, saying, as they, as they kill him, as they're killing him, and he's saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice saying, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Don't charge them with this sin. Also from the words of Christ upon the cross. He's with the face of an angel is being stoned, is being, having rocks thrown at him over and over again as they're there with just gnashing their teeth at him and, and hating him, throwing rocks at him to where he's being put to death, and he's saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. That was his last day. A man with a face like an angel preaches Christ and him crucified, preaches the sovereignty of God over all of history, is there to where the people have no response because he has ministered to them in such a way that they have no answer. 
They hate him so much that they drag him out of the city and they throw rocks at him till he dies. And yet in the end, he's saying, Father, forgive them. Father, don't charge them with this sin. It tells us in the next verse of chapter 8, now Saul was consenting to his death. Saul had no problem with his death. But God was going to save Saul, as we'll find in a few chapters. And God was going to work miraculously through Saul, who would become Paul. God was sovereign over it all. But this man finished well. I'll ask you, does he describe Jonathan Edwards' resolution? Resolve that I'll do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory. And my own good, profit and pleasure. In the whole of my duration, without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence, resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolve to do this whatever difficulties I meet with, however many and how great soever. They were great, and they were many as far as the difficulties he faced. Nevertheless, it was most to God's glory, and he was received as he saw the glory of the Lord, Christ standing at the right hand of the Father to welcome him into the kingdom, my good and faithful servant in whom I am well pleased. What an awesome picture that is for us. If we live our lives as if this could be our last day, one of these days it will be. May we have a pattern of living in such a way that is most to God's glory and for our good. So when that day comes, we will have no regrets. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for what we see in the life of Stephen. We thank you for how you've worked so mightily, even through a man's death. We know that, that he was full of faith, and he saw your sovereignty from the very begin, beginning all the way through and even trusted in you as rocks are being thrown at him. The kindness of our God to enable him to see your glory as you're there at the right hand of the Father, welcoming him into the kingdom. And to think that, that the final blow that made it so that he fell asleep and died was followed by a breath of the most refreshing air he has ever breathed as he had entered into the joy of the Lord. Be with the Acton family. Minister to them. Be with us as a congregation. Minister to our hearts. May we live in such a way that we find decades of us through the enabling of your Holy Spirit keeping our eyes fixed upon you. Now, Lord, we pray that you're exalted in our time of worship. In Jesus' name, amen.